0: So today is the third week in our message series, Which Way to the Promised Land? We're making our way through the second book of the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus. So far, we've learned about the plight of the people of Israel, how generation after generation uh, they've been enslaved and oppressed in Egypt, and God has heard their cry, and God is going to do something about it, but God is asking the people of Israel to trust the process. Trust the process. Yes, God is going to set you free, but deliverance never happens in an instant. Uh, Freedom never arrives in a moment. Instead, it's the slow, steady, saving hand of God, slowly and surely over time. God rescues people. God redeems people. God makes a way when and where there does not seem to be a way. And one of the ways, part of the process for God setting people free, getting them to this place of freedom, is through a meal. And so I wanted to start with that scene from the Disney Pixar movie, Ratatouille, Remy the rat is uh, helping his friend, Auguste Gusteau, sort of restore the reputation of his restaurant. On this particular night, the most important food critic in all of Paris has arrived to check out this restaurant, Anton Ego is his name. And when Mr. Ego takes a bite of Remy's ratatouille, immediately he's transported back to his childhood and the comforting ratatouille that his mother would make for him, a memorable meal. We've all had memorable meals, haven't we? You think about uh, times in your life, birthdays or anniversaries or uh, holiday celebrations, family gatherings, that sort of thing. Memorable meals, here's what I want us to do. Let's all, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up and talk to somebody close to you about a memorable meal, a favorite meal in your life. Where were you? What was on the menu? Who were you eating with? Turn around and find somebody to talk to about a memorable meal. All right, let's call it good. Thanks for playing along, everybody. You can take a seat. And you get people talking about food, and oh, watch out. So, uh, we're making our way through the book of Exodus. Today we're going to end up at a memorable meal, uh, the Passover meal. And we're going to end the message by talking about the way Passover is connected to another memorable meal that we'll invite you to celebrate with us today, uh, Communion, the Holy Supper. Uh, That's where we're going to end up. Where I want to start is by backing up a little bit where we ended last week. Moses has this encounter with God at the burning bush. God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. Moses has reasons, excuses why he thinks God's idea is not a good idea, but eventually God convinces Moses to do this. And so Moses, along with his brother Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. Let the people go, and Pharaoh just kind of laughs them out of the palace, and this goes kind of this back and forth. But every time Pharaoh kicks them out, Moses says, okay, but if you say no, God is going to do something that you're not going to like, and there's a whole series of plagues. Every time uh, Pharaoh says no, God sends a plague, and we're going to talk about those plagues in detail next week. This week, I want us to talk about truth. What is true? How do we know what is true? How do we know what to believe? In the context of Moses and the Exodus, why should Pharaoh believe Moses? Why should the people of Israel believe Moses? And so there's this interesting passage that gets at what I'm uh, kind of talking about. The end of Exodus chapter 4. I'll start in verse 29. Uh, then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So remember, Moses has uh, these objections. One of his objections is, God, what if the people don't believe me? And so God says, here's what I want you to say. And it actually ends up being Aaron, who's the mouthpiece. Aaron's the one who, who says the things God wants them to say. If they still don't believe you, here's some miracles that you can do that will maybe prove to them that you've been sent by God. And so this happens, and as the people are watching, the elders and the people of Israel are watching and witnessing as they're experiencing this, they together become convinced that God has sent Moses and Aaron. What we see in these three verses, Exodus 4, verse 29, 30, and 31 we see examples of the three primary ways that people have answered the question what is true throughout human history. We got traditionalism and modernism and postmodernism. Let's start with traditionalism. For almost all of human history up until the last 500 years or so, the way we answer the question what is true, well, you go to an authority figure and the authority figure will tell you what is true. The authority figure will tell you what to believe. All kinds of authority figures could be apparent. You got questions you go to a parent can you imagine a scene like this playing out in a family where a child goes to a parent and says is it really true am I really supposed to believe that doing chores is good for me and like why make my bed Come on, mom and dad, why do I need to make my bed? And you can imagine a parent maybe responding. Have you seen that viral video? I think it's an admiral in the Navy who says, if you want to change the world, begin by making your bed every morning. If you make your bed every morning, you've accomplished the first task of the day, and it'll give you a sense of accomplishment, and that will kind of encourage you to keep doing more tasks. Eventually, the world gets changed. So maybe a parent has some kind of an answer like that for a child who wonders about making the bed. But you can also imagine the child saying, yeah, I, I get it, I understand the importance of doing tasks and accomplishing things. It's just this one particular task I don't really understand. Seriously, you never let anyone into my bedroom anyway. I just wreck the bed every time I go back to sleep. Why, do you, why make it in the first place? And after that round of back and forth, how do parents typically respond? Because I said so, that's why. Right? Because I said so, that's why. That's traditionalism. It's true if an authority figure says it's true. And it could be a parent, it could be a professor, a pastor, a priest, a religious leader, it could be royalty, maybe just you go straight to the deity, God told me you play the God card, this is how we know what to believe, this is how we know what is true. And so hopefully you can see that there might be some people who have criticisms of traditionalism. Please don't hear me saying that traditionalism is always bad, it's always wrong. Of course there are people in positions of authority that are trustworthy, that have good things to tell us that that we should believe. But there's also human nature. And and over the course of history, we've discovered that when you get to a position of power, oftentimes you don't use that power for the sake of everyone around you. You use that power in self-serving ways. Think about a period of time in in world history called the Dark Ages. The Middle Ages, sometimes it's called the Dark Ages. After the uh, fall of the Roman Empire, up until the Enlightenment or, or the Renaissance, there's this period of time sometimes called the Dark Ages, several reasons why it's called the dark ages one of the reasons is because the power of people in authority became dark became corrupt and they used their power in oppressive abusive kinds of ways and so people started to question authority people started to say just because an authority figure says it's true doesn't mean it actually is true or i have to believe it to be true and this led to uh, modernism So back in the late 1400s, early 1500s, think about a guy like Copernicus, who's very interested in planets, stars, universe, how how does this all work? And he's observing, and he's wondering, and he's questioning. The, the, The truth about the universe in the day of Copernicus was largely perpetuated by the church. The earth is the center of the universe. This is what is true. This is what you need to believe. Everything kind of revolves around us, revolves around the earth. Why would the church teach this? Why would the church say this is is what you should believe? Have you read the Bible? Joshua chapter 10, there's this great story. Uh, Joshua's in a battle leading the people of Israel into battle against the enemy, and they need some more daylight in order to win the battle. And so Joshua prays for the sun to stand still, and it does. It stands still. God makes the sun stand still. The the writer of Joshua says there's never been a day like it before or since, where the sun stopped its... Orbit around the earth and it stands still. Have you read this verse, Psalm 19, verse 6? Let's read it out loud together. It's on the screen. Oh, back up. There it is. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. How can you possibly read the Bible and come away with any other conclusion that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the earth? Well, It depends on, do you know how to read the Bible, actually? So, Psalm, this is a song. This is a lyric to a song. Don't we interpret lyrics to songs differently than we might interpret a scientific textbook? Is the writer of Psalm 19 really trying to answer the question, what is the center of the universe? No, not trying to answer that question at all. So here's Copernicus, he's studying, he's observing, he's coming up with a method of trying to verify or prove uh, something different than what the church was teaching, that the sun is actually, it's actually moving, but the earth is orbiting the sun. And as the earth is rotating around the sun, it's spinning on its axis, that's what causes sun rises, that's what causes sun sets. Guess what the church said about Copernicus? Heretic, false teacher, no place for you in the church. A hundred years later, Galileo, same kind of thing. But they started to use science and the scientific method. In modernism, when you ask the question, how do we know what to believe? How do we know what is true? The answer is, it's true if you can prove it to be true. It's true if you can prove it to be true. Now you can go to the next slide. So, if it's true, if you can prove it to be true, that's actually helpful in all kinds of ways. Uh, That's helpful in in answering all kinds of questions. But aren't there some things that you just know to be true? Some things that you believe to be true, but you can't prove it 100%? There's a podcast I like to listen to, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. Uh, He was talking about proof in one of his recent episodes, and he was looking at the history of coal miners in America. Looking at the history of coal miners in America, so uh, early 1900s. There's a guy by the name of Frederick Hoffman who works for the Prudential Insurance Company. Part of his job is to pay attention to the workers who are insured by this insurance company. What's their life expectancy? What's their health? And that sort of thing. Well, coal miners made up a big part of who they were insuring. And coal miners, you understand how this works. There's a whole lot of dust when you're working in a coal mine. They would inhale the dust, and eventually over time they would start coughing up this black, inky substance. Uh, In the early 1900s, they called it miner's asthma. Miner's asthma. Today, we call it black lung disease. But in the early 1900s, it was miner's asthma. And and Frederick Hoffman is observing this, and everybody knows, nobody debates that if you go to work in a coal mine, you're going to inhale the coal dust, and you're going to start coughing up this black, inky substance. The question was, yeah, but is that bad for you? (laughs) Is that bad for you? So Frederick Hoffman decides he's going to study it. And he does all of this research, and he comes up with mountains and mountains of evidence that shows coal miners have a significantly uh, shorter life expectancy than any other kind of blue-collar profession. And he presents all this information. He thinks that the government should be interested, business should be interested, uh, health community should be interested. Nobody's interested. He has met largely with silence. And, And what they end up saying is, yeah, okay, so you've proven that coal miners live a shorter life than everybody else but you haven't proven it's because they're inhaling the coal dust. It took another 50 years before they could make that scientific connection between the inhaling of coal dust and, you know, disease, that it's not good for you in terms of your health. Aren't there some things that we know to be true, that we believe to be true, even before we have the evidence or the proof that it's true? And so this led to the rise of something called postmodernism. In postmodernism, when you're asking the question, how do I know what is true? In postmodernism, the answer is, if I experience it to be true, then it's true. If I experience it to be true, then it's true. Particularly, if I experience it to be true uh, as part of a tribe, as part of a, a, a community, a group of people. Now again, people have written volumes about this. You can read book after book after book about traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism. This is just me trying to, as simply as I can, explain how do, how do different people at different times try to answer the question, what is true? And all three of them have critics. And critics to postmodernism. you, you can probably guess that. So truth becomes subjective. I have my truth, you have your truth. Well, that's not how truth works. Truth is, it's either true or it's not. What do, you, what do you mean, it's true if I experience it to be true? You want to know who some of the major critics of postmodern thinking are? People of faith. People of faith say, come on, come on, come on. You, you can't say something is true unless you can prove it to be true. Which I, I think is very interesting. Because by definition, aren't, if we're people of faith, isn't part of what we're saying? That we believe things even though I can't 100% prove it to be true. Think about Jesus, his death and resurrection. He appears to the disciples in his resurrected body. And the disciples are celebrating the resurrection all except for Thomas, doubting Thomas. I'm not going to believe unless I have proof. Until I can put my fingers through the nail holes in Jesus' hands, I don't believe it. And so Jesus shows up and he's eight, Thomas is able to put his fingers through the nail holes in Jesus' hands. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Remember what Jesus says? Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing, without 100% proof. That's the definition of faith. Believing in what we hope to be true. Without seeing it to be true. In other words, there is a truth or there is a proof that's kind of beyond rational argument or or logic. There's a proof that is embodied, a proof we experience, a a proof that we experience through our senses sight and sound and taste and touch and smell. Let me me try to explain what I'm getting at. I learned a new word this week, uh, aphantasia aphantasia mind blind is sometimes uh, another name for this it's people who lack imagination Uh, not just not that they're imaginative but they they do not have the ability to imagine here's a short video that'll explain it and then I want to talk about what in the world does this have to do with communion take a look
1: Hey Brainiacs, Jules here for DNews. If I asked you to count the windows in your house right now without getting up, you'd probably have no problem recounting them all in your head unless you live in a glass house, in which case you just have one giant window and have to get dressed in the basement. But when you're tallying up all the windows, can you practically see each room? Do you feel as though you're standing in your kitchen or your living room as you count them? That's the experience most people have. But for a small percentage of you, that's not the case at all. And this may be the first time you're learning that your brain works differently. Some people have no imagination. And I mean that in a literal sense. While others can read a book and hallucinate a magical world of wizards and friendship, these people see nothing. The condition isn't unheard of. It was first identified in 1880, but it's unexplored enough that it didn't have a name until 2015. Dr. Adam Zeeman is Zeeman who coined the name Aphantasia. The prefix a means without, and phantasia is the classical Greek term for imagination. Zeman and his colleagues first began studying the phenomenon in 2003, when a 65 year old man approached them complaining that he had lost the ability to picture things after heart surgery. How a heart surgery could do this? No idea. Anyway, the patient given the code name MX was a unique opportunity for science. Zeman and the team ran him through numerous tests. His brain was examined in an fMRI machine while he looked at pictures of famous people, and was asked to name them. At this point, everything in his noodle was unremarkable, but when he was only given their names and asked to picture their faces, the visual areas at the back of his brain went dark. Forming an actual picture in your mind requires regions all across your brain. To call up a mental image, the frontal and parietal lobes think about what you want to see, while the occipital and temporal lobes provide the actual visuals of the objects. If one of these areas functions differently than normal or gets damaged, it can result in aphantasia. MX seemed like a rare find, until his story was covered by Discover Magazine, and some of the readers wrote in to say that they had never been able to picture things since birth. Even stranger, for some of them, they were just discovering that they were different. Their whole lives, they were under the impression that when someone asked them to picture something, it was a metaphor, and there were no actual pictures in their mind. Biologist and aphantasiac Craig Venter says it's like a computer without a screen. There's memory, processing and inputs, but no way to see what's happening. It doesn't have to be just visuals either. When programmer Blake Ross thinks of a beach, he doesn't hear the waves, smell the salt or feel the warmth. He just thinks of facts about beaches.
0: A lot of information in a hurry, but I hope you heard that last part of it. This guy with aphantasia, when he thinks about a beach, he just thinks about facts. He doesn't feel like the warmth or the sand or smell the salt air. It's just facts. And, And there's a truth about life that is completely factual, but it's a very different kind of truth than your experience, your sensory experience when you're at the beach. Uh, This researcher, Adam Zeman, Professor of Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology, has been studying aphantasia, been studying the brain for most of his career. Uh, A year or two ago, he wrote an essay about his work, and he read the essay on BBC Radio. talks about two patients named Peter and Marcus. Uh, They have amnesia and memory loss, and they, they both speak about this experience using very similar kind of language. One of them said, my memory of my past is a blank space go back to the last slide. There it is. Uh, My memory of my past is a blank space. I feel lost and hopeless. It's like I'm trying to explore a void. And they would, one of the ways they test people, if, if you have aphantasia, they would put photographs in front of them from their past, from their life. And they were able to recognize themselves, but they had no recollection of what was happening in any of those. Who were they with? Where were they? Why was this photograph taken? Uh, One of them said it was like reading somebody else's biography, the biography of a stranger. Uh, My grandma died from Alzheimer's. I know many of you have people in your life who going down that kind of path, dementia, memory loss, whatever, hard, hard stuff. Here's one of the reasons why it's so hard. I'm listening to this essay as he's describing the people with this experience of memory loss. Two kind of thoughts hit me. Go to the next one. Yeah, number one, without memory, it's hard to cling to an identity. Without memory, it's hard to know who we are. And we might recognize ourselves in a picture, but without being able to fill in everything around it, a big part of who we are is missing And then secondly, it's hard to have hope for the future when we don't know our past. It's hard to have hope for the future when we don't know our past. So uh, Dr. Zeman, he talks about it this way. The inability to involve the past, invoke the past, greatly impedes their ability to imagine a future. If you can't remember the past, it's going to make it really hard to imagine a future. So we began the message by asking you to remember a memorable meal from your past, and you could just talk about the details, the facts of that meal, but it's really your experience of that meal that makes it memorable. The sights and the sounds and the smells and the taste and who you were with, the relationships. There's there's a truth that is experiential, that is relational. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. There's a truth about Jesus that's head knowledge, but there's also a truth about Jesus that we experience. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This gets us back to Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel. Um, They go to the people of Israel, they say, God has sent us to tell you we're going to set you free. And they question, why should we believe you, Moses? And so Moses performs these miracles to Prove that he's been sent by God. And the witness, the a shared memory of that experience, causes the people of Israel to put their faith in Moses, that God is really going to set us free, and they start to worship God. In those verses, we see traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. One is not worse than the other. One is not better than the other. In fact, all three are very biblical ways that God gets the attention of people, and when God gets your attention, it's wise to pay attention. One of the ways that God gets our attention is through the sacraments. A sacrament is a means of grace, it's a way that God helps us receive and experience His, the power of His grace at work in our lives. And so part of what that means is anything can be sacramental because God can use anything to get our attention and to help us understand His grace. That burning bush experience that Moses had, that was sacramental. Uh, in the church, there's two sacraments that we celebrate on a, a regular occasion. We've got baptism and we've got uh, communion. And part of what I want you to understand about sacraments, they always require some physical element. There's a physical element, a connection between the physical world, our senses, our our body and what God is up to. That's part of what makes it sacramental. So what do we remember when we celebrate communion? Well, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, let the people go. And time after time after time, Pharaoh says no and plagues come. They go one last time. You got one last chance, Pharaoh. Let the people go. This time, if you say no, then God's going to kill the firstborn of all the people in Egypt. And Pharaoh's not threatened. He's not scared. He kicks them out. Well, guess what happens? Moses and Aaron go to the people and say, here's what we're going to do. We got to get a lamb and we have to slaughter that lamb and save the blood. We're going to take the blood and paint it on the doorposts of our homes because tonight, after this meal where we cook the lamb and we eat it and we also eat some unleavened bread bread that doesn't taste particularly good but it's great for travel and that's what the people are getting ready to do we're going to take the blood and paint the doorpost of our homes and god's going to send the angel of death and if there is the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home that angel will pass over you if there the blood of the lamb is not there then the firstborn son will die so pharaoh's firstborn son dies and in his grief and in his anger he tells moses and aaron take the people and get out of here it's the passover it's the beginning of the exodus and as moses is giving all of these instructions to the people let's read together what he says in exodus chapter 12 verse 14 it's on the screen read it with me this is a day to remember each year from generation to generation You must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. Remember this day the Lord set you free. Remember this day the Lord started you on this journey to a new place, a new life, a new hope, a future for you. Fast forward 1,500 years and Jesus is 30 years old, goes to the Jordan River to be baptized and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years later, Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And as they are eating this Passover meal, as they are remembering this story of rescue and redemption, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm instituting a new covenant today. The old covenant, you had to kill an animal and shed up the blood of an animal in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. In the new covenant, Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. Jesus' blood is shed a once and for all time sacrifice. So we don't have to do sacrifices anymore. And Jesus is the way. The blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of our hearts. That's what saves us. That's what gives us new life. Passover, communion, these are opportunities for us to remember really important things. Communion gives us memory. And our collective memory gives us hope. We remember that God's in the business of setting people free. God's in the business of rescuing and redeeming and healing and saving. God's in the business of starting people out on a journey to a new life, a new place. And we remember that when we remember that, it gives us hope. If God did it for the people of Israel, maybe God can do it for me. If God's done it before in my life, maybe God can do it again in my life. And so we're going to invite you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good by participating in this meal that we call communion. I'm going to invite you to remember. I'm going to invite you to hope. But first, a little more ratatouille. Remy the rat has prepared this incredible dish that uh, is incredible. And, and the critic, Anton Ego, wants to give his compliments to the chef. And through some sort of mistake, they find out the chef was The rat. And so now he's like, I don't know what to do. He leaves, he's got to write his review and they don't know what he's going to say. So this is his review of uh, the ratatouille he ate that night. As you listen to it, as you watch this, see if you can make some connections between what what maybe someone would say something similar after learning about Passover and communion and taking part in the bread and the cup. Take a look. The following day his review appears.
2: In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, The average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends. Last night, I experienced something new an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, anyone can cook, but I realize Only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusteau's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gustav soon, hungry
0: for more. Hungry. The meal and its maker rocked me to the core. Why, Why does God say, here's an important part of what it means to be a person of faith. I want you to eat this. I want you to drink this. There's something important and powerful that happens when we embody our faith. We, that Our faith is an embodied faith, the incarnation, Jesus, a God who takes on flesh. And you remember what he says? These are hard words. Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember what God is up to. And so we remember when we come it was the night he was betrayed that Jesus took some bread he broke it and blessed it gave it to his disciples he said take and eat it's my body given for you eat this and remember me when you eat it later in the meal he took the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins drink this and remember me when you drink it let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray You may be seated. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward at this time. And as they're coming forward, some instructions for you. If you've never celebrated communion with us before, here at Hope the ushers will tell you uh, when it's time for you to come forward, uh, they'll lead you to the closest station where we will give you a wafer of horrible-tasting unleavened bread. You can dip it in the dark-colored wine or the light-colored grape juice. We also have an allergy-free station available on the far right-hand wall. Stacy would love to serve you over there. Uh, Maybe this is your first time to celebrate communion, and you're wondering, are are you really welcome? The answer is absolutely yes. It wasn't just the people of Israel who went on the exodus. A lot of Egyptians went with them, and foreigners is what uh, Scripture tells us. It's for everyone. God's way is for everyone. Maybe you've celebrated communion more times than you can possibly remember. Maybe you just come a little more slowly to the table today. And you really feel the bread. And you watch as you dip it into the wine or, or the grape juice. And you let it stay on your tongue and taste it for just a little bit longer than you normally do. That you would experience what God is up to in this moment. All's prepared. Let's eat.